Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the history of the Copts. Episode 38. One empire, two churches, three patriarchs. So last time we ended with the elevation of both Theodosius and Gaianus as rival bishops of Alexandria. And then the quick arrest and exile of Gaianus by the Empress Theodora. After the arrest, Pope Theodosius took some steps to win over the Copts and consolidate his power in Egypt. A local synod of all Egyptian bishops was then assembled to put forward a united front. In this synod, the Council of Nicaea, Constantinople, and Ephesus I were all declared to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Twelve Anasimus of Cyril was also declared to be divinely inspired and the Hinaticon of Zeno was accepted, so long as it was understood that it replaced the tomb of Leo and Chalcedon, not clarified them. Pretty standard Miaphysites stand by now. Interestingly so, the Synod skipped over Ephesus too, i.e. the Robber Council, and did not really get into the theological issues between Severus and Julian. Also, for the last point, the result of the Synod was sent to Severus alone in Constantinople, who wholeheartedly supported the effort. So the Egyptian bishops were clearly pro-Severus, and in return, Severus declared that Theodosius was the only legitimate bishop of Alexandria. Thus, through the legitimacy granted by the Synod and the approval of Severus, Bob Seudusius was able to eliminate some of the earlier hostility toward him, and he managed to do quite well for the next 17 months. Well enough that within the short period, Gaianus was reduced to irrelevant schismatic, and Seudusius became the obvious leader of the Miaphysites in Egypt. Now, Gaianus still had a core of loyal supporters, and they would hold on for a while. But it seemed like Theodosius managed to become popular enough to be accepted. In the capital too, the severe and Miaphysites were doing quite well. The Patriarch of Constantinople died around the same time as Pope Timothy III, and through the influence of Theodora, an elderly monk named Ansimus was picked as his replacement. Now, Ansimus is really an interesting individual, with quite a backstory. He started his career out 
as a clear-cut Chalcedonian, and even represented that party in the debates that Justinian held. But remarkably, after the debates, he seemed to be moving over to the Miaphysite side, a move that was completed when Severus came to Constantinople and finally won the elderly monk to the Miaphysite side. So in essence, he was a sincere, high-level convert. Also, Anasimus stated his support in more or less newly established Justinianic terms, rather than the standard Miaphysite terminology. So, instead of condemning the Council of Chalcedon directly, he condemned the Crypto-Nestorian bishops Theodore, Diodor, and Ibas, and rather than proclaim a Christ out of two natures, he proclaimed a Christ that is one in the Trinity who suffered in the flesh, which was directly from the Scasian monks and Justinian's favorite terminology at this point. Most importantly so, he publicly declared that both Severus and Seudosius are legitimate patriarch, in essence forming a three-way Miaphysite alliance which made the Chalcedonian and Severus's replacement in Antioch very nervous. A group of monks from Palestine then traveled and went to the capital, and demanded from the new patriarch that he anastomize the discourse, which he refused to do, plainly making it clear where he stood. This was followed up by Ephraim, Severus's replacement in Antioch, sending a joint delegation with those Palestinian monks to the Boban Rome, asking for his help in this new development. Now, over in Italy, things were moving very fast, and the armies of the empire were already in Sicily and Central Europe, actively on the way to invade Italy. For their parts, the Gothic ruling family in there were in the middle of their own bloody feud, and the current king in Italy was pulling out all the diplomatic stops trying to buy peace until he can consolidate his power. The most important of those diplomatic avenues was the Pope, at this point a newly ordained native Roman named Agaptus. Pope Agaptus was summoned to Ravenna and ordered to go to Constantinople to try and arrange peace, or at the very least a ceasefire with Justinian. So almost on cue, the delegation arrived in a perfect time as the Pope was just about to hit the Constantinople personally and be able to do something about their complaints. On his arrival, let's just say, Justinian took a sharp turn in his dealing with the Miaphysites. To quote Zachariah of Melitene directly, our chief primary Miaphysite source, the whole city was disturbed at the arrival of Agaptus and the earth, with all that is upon it, quaked. The sun began to be darkened by day, and the moon by night, while the ocean was tumultuous with spray from the 24th of March in this year until the 24th of June in the following year. And Agaptus, when he appeared before the king, 
had a splendid reception from him, because he spoke the same tongue and was the chief priest of the country of Italy. So, as you have probably figured out from Zechariah's elaborate description, his visit to Constantinople ended up being really bad for the Miaphysites. Out of the combination of the Pope's spiritual authority and Justinian respect for his person, plus of course the political situation in Italy, where the empire needed the Pope's cooperation, Justinian reversed his religious policy toward the Miaphysites. Ansimus was immediately removed from his office and the grounds of uncanonical election, and to replace him, Pope Agaptus personally ordained a Chalcedonian Copt named Mina as the Patriarch of Constantinople. Minas was Justinian's man to the end, so, and he let it known quickly after his elevation that, quote, without the emperor's will and command, nothing could happen in a matter touching ecclesiastical affairs. Next on the list was Severus, who was mentioned by name in an imperial edict that ordered the burning of all of his writings. He was sheltered by Theodora until he secured passage to Alexandria, and he traveled back to Egypt for the last time. He spent the last 18 months of his life in hiding, where the last thing that he experienced was imperial agents hunting down copies of his writing to essentially wipe his name from memory. They would fail, and Severus's name would outlast all of his peers. Technically, Justinian was somewhat successful in eliminating a lot of his writing in Greek, but most of his work was translated and survived mostly intact in Syriac and Coptic. This was, in a way, a foreshadow of the fall of the Greek culture and way of life in the Middle East. The Coptic and Syrian Miaphysites were able to completely preserve their theology without needing to resort to Greek. Really, starting with the writing of Severus. I did not get to it as much as I should have. But Severus was really a magnificent writer, and probably the best theologian since an Athanasius himself. He was in a league of his own, and by his pen, he built up the Miaphysite church. As I mentioned when we started talking about him, he is highly revered in the modern Coptic church. Which makes a lot of sense, considering that in a way, he was a second founder after St. Mark. You see, out of all the different terminologies and ideas going around in the 6th century, in Egypt, his thoughts clearly won out in the end of the day. His Miaphysite rival, Julian, was forgotten about within a hundred years. The Justinianic term, popular in the day, one of the trinity that have suffered in the flesh, didn't even survive until Justinian died. But Severus's work, especially the one that built on Bob Cyril's work, survived and became Miaphysite Christology 101. Remember episode 24, 
Christological debates, where we went through all the different Greek terms, roughly equivalent to the word nature that Pope Cyril used in his writing. These words were Osea, physesis, brosbon, and hypostasis. Well, these terms were clearly defined and took a technical meaning that meant very specific things because of Severus's writing. When he died, Pope Theodosius stepped in quite comfortably in his shoes and became the recognized leader of the Miaphysites. In apostolic succession terms, Severus was followed by Theodosius, who would be the first Coptic patriarch to ordain clergy exclusively for the Miaphysite church, and in essence, the father of all future Coptic popes. Thus, the high reverence that Severus is given today in the modern Coptic church makes sense. As I said, he was practically a second founder. After Severus was removed, Pope Theodosius was naturally the next target to be removed by Justinian. But as I hope it is clear by now, Egypt had to be handled with care when it came to its patriarchs. So Justinian delayed a bit until a more politically opportune time. And he really could afford a delay, as Agaptus had died suddenly in Constantinople, shortly after the removing of Onesimus and the ordination of Mina. And along the same lines, when it came time to remove him, rather than send an armed legion to do it and risk a revolt, Justinian repeated his playbook from a few years earlier and invited Theodosius to come to the capital for a theological discussion. Pope Theodosius was not really in a position to say no, but when he went to the capital, he stuck with his severe and miaphysite position, and Justinian's effort at winning him over failed. Thus, while still in the capital, he was arrested and exiled to a fortress in Thrace. Shortly after, a deacon from Italy that served as the permanent representative of the Roman papacy in Constantinople nominated a replacement, a shady Egyptian monk named Baal. Baal was ordained by his fellow copt, the patriarch Mina, and traveled to Alexandria to officially start his reign and become our third patriarch in Alexandria under Justinian. As soon as Paul arrived, he got involved in a botched murder of one of the archdeacons of the city, who happened to be well-connected and a very influential citizen of the city. The word reached Theodora, and by default Justinian, who were now compelled to remove Paul, as it became clear that he was not working out. Not to be deterred so. Justinian gave the green light for Ephraim in Antioch to travel to Alexandria in person and nominate someone and ordain him as the Chalcedonian bishop of the city. Ephraim then traveled to Alexandria, was a Palestinian monk that was very close to him, and ordained that monk to be the Chalcedonian patriarch of Alexandria. 
In addition to choosing the new patriarch, Ephraim wisely also assigned a new military officer in Alexandria, with the sole job of protecting the new patriarch from the crowd. Yet even with the military officer, Justinian found himself having to issue an edict to shut down all the churches in Alexandria until further notice. For a full year, not a single church was operational in Alexandria, and it probably would have been even longer if it wasn't for the building of two new churches just outside the city by the Copts to get around the order. So now we have come full circle. The Egyptian church has a foreign patriarch imported by a foreign government, and those new patriarchs were, as Stephen J. Davis from his book The Early Coptic Papacy put it, soldier patriarchs with civil and military authority above that of the army generals and the governors of Egypt, who at this point happened to be under constant reshuffling and reorganization under Justinian. So basically, the Chalcedonian Patriarch of Alexandria was the only constant in the governing of Egypt. Gone were the days where Coptic Patriarchs like Theophilus and Cyril can dictate the religious policy of the East and put up a fight with imperial agents in Egypt. Now, every successive imperial government would try to kill any sort of local independence of Egyptian Christianity. Think back when we started the journey, when Octavian quickly isolated the Memphis high priest and replaced him with a Roman administrator with the same title. Well, the Byzantines had just stumbled into doing the exact kind of thing. The new patriarch was a civil and a military administrator working for the emperor, was the title of the Bishop of Alexandria. This development, and really, the change of policy following the visit of Pope Agapetus to Constantinople, is a seminal moment in our narrative. It is the moment that really marks the official start of two independent churches and the empire. As I mentioned earlier, when Justinian closed the churches in Alexandria, the Copts built two churches in the outskirts of the city. So, when the churches were reopened in Alexandria and its outskirts, there were Miaphysite churches with Miaphysite clergy and Chalcedonian churches with Chalcedonian clergy. Additionally, as a salient point, that deserves pointing out. When Justinian removed and exiled Pope Theodosius, it was the first time that a patriarch is unilaterally removed by the emperor, with absolutely no efforts being made to get the approval of a synod of his fellow bishops, or even a civil trial. Justinian and his successors would make it a regular habit and bishops will be removed and appointed, basically, by imperial whims, rather than the principles laid down by Constantine the Great, who, if you remember, 
refused to call Athanasius's banishment an exile or appoint a replacement based on these principles. None other than Agapetus's successor himself would suffer from this fate, but we will get there in a bit. For now, after about a year in exile in Thrace, Bobsidosius was recalled to the capital under the protection of Theodora and resumed his duties as a patriarch of Alexandria via letters that were to be enforced by loyal monks. By 530 AD, when Severus has died, Bobsidosius has opened a line of communication with the Miaphysites in Syria and he was looked to as the natural leader of them as well which was necessary, as Jean of Tella was arrested and then killed in the very same year. So there was no one left for the Miaphysites but Theodosius. And not only in a spiritual sense, but rather in a very practical sense of performing ordinations for Miaphysite clergy, which have been a problem since the days of Justin. And to make the issue worse, Bobsidosius refused to ordain separate clergy as he still held out hope for resurrecting the one church and ordaining separate clergy would have made this a problem. Alas, in one of those ironic twists of history, it was not the Copts or the Syrians who forced his hand into ordaining Miaphysite clergy and forming a separate Miaphysite hierarchy. No, it was none other than the Persians and the Arabs who were moved to actions by the war in Italy. You see, the ongoing Italian campaign have been going slowly with many setbacks. To make a really long and a complicated story short, when Agapetus died, the Gothic king in Italy pushed through his own candidate to the papacy to replace him, who then went and handed Rome to the Byzantines, betraying his Gothic benefactor. Only to be betrayed himself, unforcibly removed and then killed by harsh treatment by the Byzantine general in charge of the campaign. An interesting individual who would not get to named Belisarius because Theodora had her own candidate in mind. Theodora's candidate, a Roman deacon based in Constantinople, named Vigilus, apparently made it clear that he is willing to sign whatever theological formula was in fashion in return for the Byzantine support for the office. In one highly contested letter to Theodora, he wrote that, quote, we do not confess two natures in Christ, but that Christ is composed out of two natures. A striking development, as here we have the Pope all of the sudden becoming a Miaphysite and throwing every single Pope before him up to Leo under the bus. To be fair, so, Pope Vigilus would end up jumping from one formula to another trying to make whoever in front of him happy, and in the process, infuriating everybody, including Justinian. So, he wasn't really a Miaphysite or Chalcedonian or whatever, 
he was just an ambitious guy trying to move ahead. After telling Theodora what she wanted to hear, he went ahead and supported Justinian anti-Miaphysite edicts, also telling him what he wanted to hear. We will go back to him probably next week, so do not forget about him yet. The point important to us now that the Byzantines were making headway in Italy and the Goths were in trouble. In a desperate move, they sent a delegation to Persia, asking them to please attack the East to hopefully force Justinian's hand to end the Italian campaign. The Persians realized the golden opportunity for what it is, and preparation were made for war. I mean, when would you ever find the road to Antioch completely open like it is now? Yes, there was the minor complication of the Eternal Peace Treaty that Justinian paid 11,000 pounds of gold for. But no worries, we will just tell the Lachmits to pick a fight with the Ghassanids, and when the Ghassanids respond, we can just say that the Romans broke the treaty first, not us, easy. And thus, the Persian armies went to war in Syria. Not to conquer so, but to get rich. Basically, the strategy of the Persians was to besiege a city and demand a large bribe to go away. A bribe that most cities happily paid. Unfortunately so, Antioch was not one of those cities, and the Persian sacked the city killing or relocating all of its citizens. Now, this was a big deal. Antioch was the third biggest city in the empire and was a very wealthy city. Things have started to barely get better from the earthquake four years earlier. And now the Persians have completely depopulated the city. This development led directly to Pope Theodosius dropping his objection about ordaining Miaphysite clergy. During the Persian War, the Ghassanids became very important, as the regular Roman armies were scattered between North Africa and Italy. Their chief, Al-Haris, saw the war as an opportunity to get concessions from the Byzantines. You see, to him, if he was only able to get a Ghassanid church going, well, that will go a long way from transforming his tribal confederation to a real kingdom. Ideally, this church would be a Miaphysite church, because 1. Most of his tribesmen are Miaphysites. 2. It would ensure that his flourishing kingdom would not be completely dominated by the Byzantines, as the church would naturally be independent. I'm not planning to get into it, as I could never do it enough justice, but the Armenian church ended up being staunchly Miaphysite for the very same reason, to put some political distance between them and the Byzantines. At any rate, Al-Haris sent a delegation to the capital, asking for his own Miaphysite bishops, who can form a church 
and ordained Miaphysite clergy. Justinian was not really in a position to say no. The Ghassanids were the only thing that he had against Persia. Not to mention, even if he said no, Theodora would just use her influence and get it done anyway. Which pretty much how it happened. Justinian stepped away and Theodora went to Bob Sidosius and formulated a plan. By then, Bob Sidosius was living in one of the palaces in the capital under her protection. For all intents and purposes, he was still the Patriarch of Alexandria and was treated extremely well by Justinian and Theodora. Apparently, he was addressed both as the Pope and the Ecumenical Patriarch of the Miaphysites. Probably the only person ever to combine these two titles. But anyway, Theodora asked Bobsi Dosius to let down his objection about ordaining exclusive Miaphysite clergy and ordain two bishops to satisfy the Ghassanids' demands. He agreed to what looked like a minor exception in an extraordinary situation and ordained the two Syrian monks that Theodora nominated. One of these monks, Theodore, was ordained for a city in Syria named Bastra and essentially traveled full-time with the Ghassanids. The second, however, Jacob Baradeus, was one of the greatest missionaries and bishops Syria have seen. The man in the ragged clothes, as his name literally translates into, would continuously travel the whole Eastern Empire, ordaining Miaphysite bishops everywhere from Egypt to Ephesus. His energy and dedication essentially built the Syrian Miaphysite church, and his name survives in the moniker Jacobites that the Syrian Miaphysites sometimes are called by. When he is done, there would be a full Miaphysite church hierarchy that would live and breathe theologically and culturally, if not physically, outside of the empire. The new church being born with Jacob Bardius was more than just a different theological take on a problematic council. Now, in Syria, it was a Syriac church, using a language different than Greek, culturally distinct from the rest of the empire. The same development was also happening in Egypt, also more gradually and over a much longer time. Probably since Shinoda the Archimedrite stopped using Greek as a liturgical language. Now, even when Justinian manages to get some serious concessions from the Chalcedonian to return the Miaphysites, it will be too late. Like I said, the new church was a cultural and a religious space inside the empire physically, but outside in every other sense. The Copts and the Syrians have reclaimed a piece of their independence in their own church, and there were no way they will give that back, no matter how many hoops Justinian will jump through 
to make Chalcedon acceptable. And next week, he will jump through lots of hoops in a little thing called the Three Chapters Controversy, when none other than Urgen will make a brief guest appearance. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next week. Thank you.